0: It's that time of year again to bring the HBCU energy. Target has you covered from a range of Black-owned or founded products alongside impactful opportunities to support and invest in the next generation of HBCU excellence. Whether it's homecoming or brunch with the girls, add an exclamation point to the menu with the Bronx-owned Ghetto Gastro's waffle mix and syrup and Slutty Vegan's Tasty Dips. Even better, make it a party with fun games like Lyrically Correct and Culture Karaoke. Discover more ways to tap in with Black-owned or founded products for your next social gathering. And oh, by the way, did you know Target's bringing back the HBCU Design Challenge? A creative competition pairing HBCU students with Target mentors. Keep an eye out for Target Scholars as well. A scholastic program offering financial assistance and internship opportunities for HBCU students. Lock in with Target this homecoming season and beyond at Target.com slash Measure. You know what else Target is doing? They're sponsoring season two of Illuminating Intersectionality, hosted by myself, Chef Jade, Dr. Takia Robinson, and Fran of Hey Fran Hey. It's a three part series, season two, that discusses intersectionality as black women in different spaces. And in this particular season, we are covering what? HBCUs. Illuminating Intersectionality drops homecoming week. Make sure you listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This is where they stay from. Throw it up. Dubs on the Cadillac. White tees, Nikes. Gangsters don't know how to act. Adamsville, Bankhead, College Park, Carver Homes. Hummus floating on chrome. Choking on that homegrown. They got that southern cooking. They got them fellas looking. Thinking I was easy. I can see it. That's when I say no. What for? Shorty can't handle it. Sierra got the fire, like, oh. Welcome to 2005 uh, when Jade was in college. And I think Kia was too. Maybe she was just graduating. Anyway, praise the Lord, niggas. Welcome back to another episode of Getting Grown, a bonus episode to be specific. So, um, today like I said, is a bonus episode, which is sponsored by Target and Black Beyond Measure. And I want you all to press pause, okay, on this, if you haven't done so, and go and listen to all three episodes of Illuminating Intersectionality, season two, uh, where friend Kia, and myself sit down and have some amazing conversations um, about various topics, okay? Uh, And specifically in this bonus episode of Getting Grown, In episode one, if you listen to Illuminating Intersectionality, you will hear that Kia interviewed some fabulous, fabulous women who I've also had the privilege of sitting down and having a conversation with, Dr. Lori Patton Davis and Dr. Nadrea Njoku. And you didn't get the full conversation. You got a lot, but you didn't get the full conversation. So here in this bonus episode, we're going to go ahead and let you all hear the entire interview between Dr. Takiya Robinson, Dr. Nadrea Njoku, and Dr. Lori Patton Davis. Um, and I want you all to really enjoy it because it's an enthralling, compelling conversation. As a person who is not an academic, I can tell you that I was fully captivated the entire time. All right, so that's the first half of this bonus episode. And in the second half of this episode, you're going to hear me sit down with K.J. Kearney of Black Food Fridays and one of my dearest friends, Shariel um, both uh, alums of illustrious HBCUs, KJ of South Carolina State, Shariel of uh, Howard. And I sit down and talk to them um, even further expounding on the conversation in episode three around food as community at an HBCU and so much more. So please enjoy this bonus episode of Getting Grown. Again, it will be split into two in you know two parts of this so you've got the first half that will be uh Dr. Kia's full interview and the second half will be my interview with KJ and my interview with Shariel and you don't want to miss either one so check it out
1: thank you both for joining me today I'm really excited always good to connect with um my, my friends and sisters in the field especially when I know that they're doing uh, amazing work! Um, if you could just, for the record, just introduce yourself. Let us let me know uh, who you are, where you are, and um, you know what role you're functioning in uh, uh, today. So, you
2: want to start, Nadrea? Sure. So, um, Nadrea Injoku, I am a scholar on African American women um, in higher education. Particularly focused on the cultural environments that they occupy throughout, um, their educative experiences with a specific focus on historically black colleges and universities. And, um, currently I am the assistant vice president and lead for the Frederick D. Patterson Research Institute at the United Negro College Fund. Amazing. Thank you for joining us, Lori. All right. Well, uh similar
3: to Nigeria, uh I am also um a scholar, researcher, um focused on black women in uh educational and social contexts, and um particularly interested in how black women navigate, you know, post secondary uh institutional environments. And I am currently a professor in the higher education and student affairs program at the Ohio State University.
2: Amazing. I was just by
1: asking Oh, go ahead, Andrea.
2: Yeah, I just want to state for the record that Lori and I both um, co-direct and are co-primary investigators for a project entitled Black Girl on Campus. Um, okay. It's a passion project for us. It's sort of the integration of the Venn diagram you see with our careers. Um, and at every juncture and opportunity, uh, we want to amplify Black Girl on campus as, um, a framework for joy and nuancing how Black women experience life.
1: For sure. Um, so that's a great segue into the my first question because I, I want us to sort of ground this conversation in the understanding of why it's important for us to have conversations and discussions about black women. Why why is illuminating the experiences and contributions of black girls and black women so important?
3: Um, I guess my question is why not? You know? Yeah. Um, I was uh, listening to a uh, different podcast, uh, uh, Jamel Hill is Unbothered, mm-hmm. and I watched the episode. She says this line. She's like, Black women been done new, right?
1: <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> and so, you know, I think if you think about any um, significant social justice movement, any cultural shift, um, any effort, whether it's dealing with politics, education, fashion, music or whatever, Black women have had something to do with that uh, and are likely the leaders, you know, in in that regard. But I think conversations like this become critical because even though Black women are there and have a physical presence and have, uh, you know, contributed all this intellectual and creative knowledge, it's hard for people to recognize us, right? Or to see the contributions. And it's easy for many people to take, right? To to just, just take it and call it their own without acknowledging Black women's contributions. And so I think there's some people, you know, who aren't socialized to really see Black women. And then there are other people who just simply refuse to see us and they don't understand us as influential or powerful or, you know, builders or any of the, you know, any of those sort of things are cultivators. And so I think we need to have dialogues like this because it, you know, allows us to mark a, a space, I think, um, allows us to, you know, name moments and, you know, speak directly to Black women's contributions and to center them and acknowledge them
2: yeah and I would add that when we're talking about historical black colleges and universities as an experience, but also a part of the higher education of the history of higher education, black women have been at the forefront um, of pioneering a lot of spaces that we appreciate and know of today, but they don't get credit for. So when you think about student affairs as a profession, there was a black woman at the forefront of that movement. Lucy Dixlow was the first um, dean of women at Howard University. She also founded um, the National Association of College Women and the Association of Advisors of Women in Colored Schools. And so her activism in her profession almost set a pathway for what we know today as student affairs. And so it is a marker of how for a very long time and continue to be so, there are innovations and experiences and histories of higher education that Black women don't get the credit for being the source of, right? Um, you think of intrusive advising and an ethic of care, all those are constructs of, you know, um, Black feminist thought. And were pioneered at HBCUs. We don't get the credit for pioneering those. Um, but when we think about guided pathways, um big state flagship institutions, they become the innovators and they are, you know, so amazing at doing that. But if we would trace it back, you would trace it right back to an HBCU and a black woman who wrote an article about how Black women need to be more than just mothers and housekeepers, and even more than just teachers. They need to be lawyers um, and agreed and in professional fields and think and be more than just the head of a household. Um, so, I mean, it goes really deep when you think about the intersectionality of HBC's higher education and Black women.
1: For sure. I think, you know, on its on its face, on their face, you know, a lot of people, especially uh, mainstream conversations, we look at HPCs and they think, wow, this is a predominantly black space. And so there's almost this assumption that uh, issues of of patriarchy or, you know, power dynamics like don't exist in these spaces. Um, and, And we know that to be untrue. But a lot of people assume that because, you know, like racism, white supremacy, these things don't have a place uh at HBCUs. So I would love if you could talk a little bit about the history, a little bit more about that history of, of HBCUs um, and sort of what would warrant, uh, you know, some of the activism that you that you talked about a little a little while ago, um, just sort of help help folks understand some of the, the more the complexity of the of the history that that would make make it possible or make it necessary for their for black women to have operated and function in the ways that they have.
2: Yeah. Lori can you kind of lay out how yeah. that works with black people and black women and then I can nuance it around HBCUs. Okay. Um so
3: I, I think um broadly, when we think about, uh, you know, our community, you know, just Black people in general, uh, or we think about the uh, question around Black students in college. For a long time, that literature and that research presumed that when we talk about Black students in college, we're talking about everybody. But really, we were talking about Black men, right? Talking about Mm -hmm. their experiences. And I think um, it, I believe Jacqueline Fleming study. And this was I think it was in the 80s mm-hmm. uh, where mm-hmm. she took the time to study black uh, students in college and then pulled that information out. And, th- and that's where the educational research had been lacking for so long that they, they never disaggregated experiences. And so. Mm-hmm. Never really understood how Black women were experiencing college, uh, and it was her work that I think really helped shed light on. Here's how Black women sort of operate and navigate predominantly white spaces, and here's how they navigate historically, you know, Black college and university spaces. And everything is not rosy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, you know, within the HBCU context, and that you know, they're. Um, uh, doing well academically, but, um, you know, as they get older, not, not as assertive. And so there is something in the environment that, you know, may have been prohibitive uh, for mm-hmm. Black women's voices um, is what she was basically saying, you know, through her research. Um, and even, um, you know, in my own work, looking at um, a Uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual students at uh, HBCUs and, you know, taking the time to think about the women in this study. And they loved their HBCU experience, but they just acknowledged the fact that um, they had to deal with a lot of patriarchal, you know, sorts of, uh, things, you know, again, around voice, around what it means to be a woman, around building, uh, romantic relationships or interpersonal relationships. Uh, and so that piece was always there. And so the question becomes like, how, how do you navigate an environment that really does, uh, value you and, um, Honor you for your blackness, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's not a thing. You you're amazing. Um, and then there are these other dynamics around maybe gender or uh, or class that yes. you know tend to take the conversation in a completely different direction. And uh, I, I guess the the how I see this, you know, as connected to intersectionality um, is that this is structural, right? So it's not unique to an HBCU and it's not unique to a PWI. It is unique to society um, where it's very hard to undo um white heterosis patriarchy, period. It doesn't matter, you know, what what environment. Right. Uh, And so that's why it's hard to see, you know, more black women as presidents. Right. Or um, in leadership roles. Um, That's why, you know, it's hard to see more black women. And and to HBCU's credit, we wouldn't have as many black women in STEM were it not for, you know, HBCU.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
3: but we're still not, you know where we need to be. And uh, Nigeria, you know earlier mentioned uh, Lucy uh, uh, diggs Slow and her role. And you know the the president at how at Howard at the time, you know, was making ultimatums of her on her deathbed, right?. Yep, yep. And but what's underlying that had a lot to do with um her sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, Her, you know, willingness to, you know, push boundaries, you know, to be very open and unapologetic about supporting Black women. And the reality is that there are, you know, folks in, regardless, again, of the Context who don't want Black women to, again, be powerful or to have voice. And so the 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 thing you do is to, you know, move toward punishment. And uh, mm-hmm. and I have uh, one of our articles focuses on institution-sanctioned violence, right? How things happen in post-secondary context and they become punitive for Black women, you know, uh, and, and we get blamed for our predicament, but it's really about these larger, intersecting um structures of oppression yes. uh that are sort of compounding
2: um our experiences yes yeah. um i just want to add that laurie brought up jacqueline fleming and the importance of her work jacqueline fleming's work is really important but it's also a marker of how we need to update research so mm-hmm. Lori and I's relationship is really tied to the fact that she is a mentor in the chair for my dissertation. And being her student, she asked that I return to that research. I read her work. And with intersectionality and a Black feminist lens, right, um, we take lived experience as a marker for knowledge. And when I was reading her work, or work about Black women in historical Black colleges throughout the eighties, the nineties, and even in the early two thousands. I was finding that they were describing an experience that I did not have as a Black woman in HBCU. Um, they very much articulate, articulated a docile lack of assertion. Um, women who are going to school to find a husband. And that was not what I. Experienced or I witnessed at my HBCU, I found that women were very assertive. They had very strong goals. They were very focused on achieving with or without a man, and that there were such a level of heter- heterogeneity within those black women that there were many black women who were at the margins of the campus, mm. very much like. Margins we see at PWIs around sexuality, um, around appearance, around um, career choices, lifestyle choices. And so, in my work, for me singularly, I sought to get stories of Black women, particularly those who were non binary, who happened to find themselves and they were very successful, but still not married. Um, And so we have to continue to update the work. And I think that blackness doesn't necessitate that we don't have prejudice and that we don't take on paradigms or frameworks like white supremacy or whiteness as property. Right. And so we will latch on to things that get us closer to that goal, but also could discard our culture and our people. And we go into those spaces very like I un- cannot believe that we're in a black space and people are doing these to black people, these things to black people. like we're in a black culture, like we're in a black school, we're in a black organization. And I just cannot believe that we would have to do work around gender or we would have to uplift black people. But those things ha- we are. We are more alike than we th- than we know. Right. And so there is discrimination in black spaces. There are Black women, when I was going to into college 2001 and 2006, where, you know, gay, lesbian women, trans women were not welcomed on those mm-hmm. campuses. You know, they were so at the margins that they were scurrying to get out of campus housing so that they could have freedom and experience mm-hmm. joy and explore who they were as women without the gaze of student affairs, professors, or even their peers to judge them. Um, I feel like, I just, oh, go ahead, Lauren. I was just going to add one other thing. Uh, what came
3: to mind uh, as you were talking was um, the more house appropriate attire policy. Yeah. And um, I think that's probably one of the more glaring instances. I mean, the, the fact that it made national news. hmm um, around you know policing how men you know dress and you know all of these other things Mm -hmm. but uh, uh, I remember you know wondering like how do you how do you support students you know in their identity development and you know support them in exploring who they are while also you know again, uh, introducing po- policies like this, right? Um, and same is true, you know, when Spelman had um, uh, introduced the uh, new admissions policy where they were going to admit, you know, trans women and there were, you know, alumni, you know, were not happy about that. And mm-hmm. so that that piece is still there, um, but, you know, remaining great institutions, but also grappling with some of these um problematic um, ideas around who Black women are, can be,
2: should be, and so forth.
1: Uh, I think that makes me think, so like one of the things, I guess some pushback that exists, a lot of people don't want us to have these conversations because it exposes, like you said, the things that we're struggling with, the things that we're still grappling with, or that being honest about these challenges somehow diminishes the um, you know, all of the wonderful things or the great work of these institutions and the and how they contribute not only to post secondary, uh the post secondary landscape, but to society at large. Um, I wanna, I would, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about the value of having these conversations, um you know, both within academics Within the academy, but also in sort of mainstream spaces like this podcast, right? So we're all academics sitting around this table. But one of the things that I, I think we all have, we all um, work um, to affect change broadly, right? And we don't want our these conversations to be limited to just sort of the the academy. So why is it important for everyone to know uh, and discuss? the complex experiences of Black women at HBCUs?
2: Hmm. I think I know that the work that Lori and I are doing with Black Girl on Campus will have tentacles outside the academy. This podcast will be people will be um, pleasantly surprised when they listen to this because it's important for us to have those these discussions outside the academy so that other people can hear Mm -hmm. what are truths and one it will affirm those who believe that they were not seen right Mm -hmm. i mean we can talk about all the women on the margins who have disturbing traumatic experiences at their hbcus but we'll give back we'll go to homecoming and they will hang out with their community and put those to the side because of the love of the institution but never feel like people had that experience as well. And so we need to affirm those women and we need for them to know that we see them. And there are other women who had this experience, these types of experiences and made it through. Um, Because there are some that struggle with their experiences as well. But also for those who didn't believe or didn't know or didn't even see them, they need to know that those women existed and they walk the campus or act that maybe you were questioning why a woman moved and acted in a particular kind of way, and you judged her, and you never took the time to ask her why. And these were some of the reasons why. So it's about, you know, level setting and improving as a community. And we can't do that unless we have honest conversations.
3: For sure. Um I I will just add, I mean, the bottom line is that we're not all the same. I know that for those outside of, you know, HBCU spaces, you know, or who aren't really connected to the Black community writ large, you know, may not understand that, but we aren't all the same. Our experiences aren't all the same. We don't think the same, right? There are there are some continuities, right? But there's uh, a great deal of, and I think it was you, Nigeria, who said heterogeneity among Black people, right? And so I think conversations like this help bring that, you know, um, uh, dynamic nature uh, of Black life, you know, to a broader audience. Um, I also, you know, I guess as we've been talking, I've been thinking about uh, uh, Beyonce's homecoming performance. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, nobody knew that they were gonna get a taste or, you know, at mm-hmm. least some glimpse of, you know, life at, you know, an HBCU or social life at HBCU, right? And one of the things that she said uh, in that documentary, I think she said something like, um, the role was I didn't get a chance to go to college, you know, the role was my college, right? But when she got an opportunity to reflect what she would have wanted in a college experience. Oh, it was so many Black women, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the whole idea around movement and creative expression, right? Dance, you know, uh, uh, artistry. And I think when we limit our conversations um, or, or don't, allow a broader audience access, right, they miss out on that, right? And so, yes, yes, there are some challenges, you know, uh, navigating the world as a Black person, but there's also a lot of joy, right? There are a lot of experiences that make us who we are. And so, we just need to have the you know larger conversations people need to understand that it, that's the word they humanize you know like mm-hmm. these conversations have to humanize black people um, and and present us as whole human beings who you know who are intelligent and yep. um, who have fun and who create you know all of these pieces that I think just kind of gets lost um, in the in the larger discourse around uh, black mm-hmm. people
2: yeah I love what I, I would just oh, quickly that. add that um HBCUs continue to be innovators and thrive, but we couldn't underscore how much we need all students, particularly those um, from um, the black experience, to enroll at these institutions. and I think social media has opened up mm-hmm. new possibilities because young women and men go to Instagram and have real-time tours of these campuses by just scrolling the timeline. But Podcast also exposes them and their communities to possibilities. Because if you think about where they're located, mm-hmm. they're not located in California, you know, parts of the Midwest. Um they're potentially specifically in the South Southeast, in some parts of the Northeast. And so if you're not around those institutions and you're a first-generation student, you might not understand your options or what's out there for you. So, but if you understand that there are places like this, destinations for your education, your communities and yourself can explore those options, but also understanding that they're they're rapidly transforming. Spelman, Morehouse as two examples. And in my day-to-day work, I have found that the women who would have been marginalized unjustly on some of these campuses are at the center of many of those spaces now. You know, um, the heterogeneity I see lived out in a joyous way um, at Fisk, Fisk, um, Houston Tillotson, Claflin, Xavier. Those are not the students that we saw on those campuses prior. And they are living their lives very proudly and loudly, and people are allowing them to do so.
1: I love that both of you, uh, I love that you mentioned uh, Beyonce, and I love that you mentioned sort of social media, because one of the, the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation, is, uh, I was nervous about it just being fully transparent, because I didn't go to the HBCU. I wasn't encouraged to go. I didn't know uh, as much about them, unfortunately, until much later on in my life. But you know, even as an adult, um, I, I, like Beyonce, saw myself, I see myself in a lot of what is um, sort of being published and, and celebrated about HBCUs. And for a long time have felt like, well, unsure of whether it was OK for me to be a part of the conversations, to 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 join in, to, you know, what are the ways that I can contribute as someone who didn't. Uh, go go to the HBCU, what would you say to anybody listening to this podcast who uh, hasn't had sort of lived experience on an HBCU campus, but has a genuine love for these spaces and their contributions and wants to, uh, you know, what advice would you give to them?
2: What would you say to them? How would you encourage them?
3: Um,
2: so I did go to an HBCU,
3: um, but, I am surrounded Mm -hmm. (laughs) by friends and colleagues and family members who did. And, um, you know, it's been amazing and a blessing to listen to those experiences, because even though, you know, I had a good college experience, I didn't have that experience. Right. Right. Uh, And so. I love it. And what I try to do, I'll say from a scholarly standpoint when I'm doing work and it involves, you know, um uh you know, HBCU environments, I am very cautious about how they're represented in the work, right? Uh I I I believe in our society, that HBCUs are subject to unnecessary scrutiny, right? Or uh, uh a higher uh scrutiny than many institutions. And so I think if you uh are committed to HBCUs and um seeing them thrive, then some of that deals with philanthropy. It deals because I've given to HBCUs probably more than I've given to, you know, some of my own own institutions. Yes, right. You know, I've given like if you down, you down, right. You know, you you have Mm -hmm. to uh, operate in solidarity. That means you have to be conscious about what you're writing and your positionality when you present, you know, HBCUs in, in your work. Um, you know, think about ways you can build partnerships. Um, I don't, I don't think it's impossible. What I don't think anyone should do is, um, oh, what is that word? It, 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 Columbus. right? Like, oh yes. <laughs> um, uh, I've seen some scholars who have built reputations mm-hmm. off of, on the backs of
2: HBCUs. Yes.
3: And that's that bothers me. Right. Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's not what it's about. Right. Uh, so um, I, I just think it's you You got to be conscious and thoughtful about how you engage and that it's not um, exploitive in nature um, and that the work in some way benefits or illuminates. Uh, our, our HBCUs, and especially, you know, doing work around Black women and making sure that they're viewed um, as critical to um, whether it's student activism, we think about. So um, for Delta's history, right, we talk about, you know, the uh, founders participating in the march, but plenty of sororities at the time or Black women were participating in, you know, these movements, but you don't get student activism in any campus setting without black women, right? You you, you didn't get Greensboro, uh, uh, the city and Greensboro without the women from Bennett. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's um, just being conscious of the particularities. Like you have gotta be able to disaggregate. You gotta be able to pull out black women and illuminate them and to even talk about the role of uh, 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 them attending this HBCU was being cultivated that allowed them, right, or that encouraged them to participate in the way that they have.
2: We're not gonna get into marches and sororities on this conversation, okay? And whether or not we went people only went, you know, <laughs> Nellie Kwanda wrote, and she was told she was. She said she would not sit. She would not march in the back. Because y'all said we're gonna do it any way that's you know a mark that's just a history, but <laughs> that's not this conversation um I would say, go to our homecomings. I went to an h yeah. b c u and I enjoy all the benefits of every h b c u um go to homecomings, go to our games, participate in our causes, but going back to research. Always aim to do no harm mm. for these institutions, and also philanthropy, philanthropy, philanthropy. Give back, give back. Donate to the United Negro College Fund, the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. Donate to individual institutions. Do auto draft of twenty, fifty, a hundred dollars a month for your favorite HBCU, and you will be amazed how that money mm. adds up. And it makes a difference and it adds to the unrestricted funds that these institutions have access to because we can't even get into the discrimination that was at play that finds these institutions with smaller endowments For sure. than predominantly white and Ivy plus institutions. So they need our support at the events, but they also need our dollar as well. And that is not a discussion we should, we should shy away from as black people because we won't we won't have these institutions there for us and our children, children's children, if we don't contribute to them.
1: Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit more about Black Girl on Campus. Um, explain to the audience sort of what it is. I know uh you initially mentioned it, uh, you talked about it as a study and it is a study, but I know that there's a website and a hashtag. Uh tell us all about all that black girl on campus uh, is doing uh, in the world
2: today. Mm -hmm. So black girl on campus started as a hashtag. I think there was a day where I was venting my frustrations to Dr. Lori about as a doc student, you have this urgency to get things out there, but the research, and the, the data doesn't come as fast as like just the thoughts, right? It takes years to publish a, mm-hmm. publish a peer-reviewed article or years to publish a dissertation or get a book out there. And I was like, you know, I th- I, we just got to talk about this and we have to put our stake in the ground for this topic. And she was like, well, let's do a hashtag. I think it should be Black Girl on campus. So in the early days of what is used to be known as Twitter, we had a hashtag and we, we would hashtag about it and we would continuously just like put out articles or comments or like when homecoming came out, anytime we see a black woman on a college campus and we're not just talking about black women enrolled, we're talking about black women who service those campuses, um, who are um supplying labor for those institutions Like whenever you see a Black girl, woman on campus, HBCU, PWI, no matter what, um, we want to hashtag and we want to amplify and boost the signal of their presence there. Um, And then so we have a website that initially was sort of a depository of reading lists. But Lori and I have been actively getting the message out and she and I have been fundraising around this idea and trying to build support. Um, wherever possible, so that we can continue to nuance this conversation. Because, Takiyah, I I think you're an example of how the message has to go beyond the literature. It has to reach into the social media spaces, the podcast, even television. Um, Lori and I have such a wealth of knowledge and ideas that it couldn't be contained in a Black and white peer-reviewed article
3: um i will say uh just to add to that one of the other pieces that sort of helped promote or, or move us to uh this uh black girl on campus platform was uh the great eight at iu um which uh nigeria was a part of but just uh some of the particulars of that whole situation uh and what what it ultimately resulted in um i think is a testament to what it means to be a black girl on campus, right? When you see that something great is happening, but maybe the institution is failing to see it or failing to recognize it. Um, but we, you know, would spend that time, you know, whatever we saw, you know, it'd be hashtag, you know, black girl on campus. Um, mm-hmm. And now, you know, when you and and I was, you know, actually uh, visiting our threads, a lot of posts, but um, a lot of posts, you know, highlighting the work that black women are doing, you know, um, the scholarship, but now, you know, when you go on there, uh, you'll see, you know, a couple of projects that, you know, we've been engaged in, uh, one in Nigeria, you can talk about the one, um, with the, the dance teams, which I think is awesome. Um, but, uh, the one we're working on now is the Mary Jane Patterson Legacy, uh, project, um, which, uh, honors uh, the life of Mary Jane Patterson, who is the first black woman to earn a baccalaureate degree. And so what we've been trying to do uh, in the same uh, vein as Jean Noble and uh, Mary Cooper, who were uh, black women, doctoral students, you know, writing these early dissertations uh, that focus on black women, right. And, And how they experience college and what how college contributed to their social mobility and, you know, economic standing and family and all of these other pieces. Uh, and so our project does the same thing where we're really trying to, um, capture black women's pathways and the diverse ways that they get to college through college and what happens after college. Uh, and so we we need to go ahead and interview you. Um, Uh, But, uh, you know, being able to capture these stories is really important for our work. But I, I think a broader conversation because it's hard to understand, well, why are so many black women saddled with student debt at this point? Right. Like, how do you have one headline that says black women most educated group, you know, in the U.S.? but also apparently most broke group right most like there, broke. there's a there's a disconnect there and we're trying to do work you know on the front end you know what how did you get to college how did you pay for college right how did you graduate who supported mm-hmm. you that's just not inf- that's information that's assumed yes. and find to capture stories and you know provide the space for black women to to actually tell their stories. Um, and our goal isn't to just write articles. We do, you know, um want to create a digital space and use Black Girl on Campus as a platform to illuminate, you know, the experiences of those women. I love that. I
1: yeah, feel like this hope... is Oh, go ahead, I was going to say this is just the the tenets of intersectionality uh, in practice, right? So, telling those uh, illuminating those counter narratives, uh, empowering Black women to tell our own stories, uh, working against those as- assumptions that exist out there uh, about us. That's really how we start to reclaim and correct uh, a lot of those dangerous dominant narratives that are incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I-, I cut you off. Yeah. Andrea.
2: What were you going to say? Yeah. I was going to add that, you know, we want to we we this digital repository of black women's stories from higher ed, we think of like black like history makers as an example where you can go and you you could pull up countless stories of blacks in america blacks in America who um have. Can tell their stories. We want Black women to tell those stories. So we want hundreds of women to contribute and have these interviews with. But Lori and I continually just have conversations between us and who, what the researchers we're working with about how surprising the stories are. We are continually blown away by the stories that Black women are telling. And we have to. We're almost debunking myths that we hold with, within ourselves because we we go in thinking, well, based on the work we've done, this is what we're gonna find. We know they're gonna talk. They're gonna they're gonna touch on this. They either never touch on that or mm-hmm. bring up something completely left that we never knew they would talk about. Um, you know, I was telling Lori often when we're having conversations with them, they almost always sometimes use mm-hmm. the same phrases. And I'm like, are they talking? <laughs> are they conspiring to tell us the same stories in time? Or they'll say things and we, you know, there, some women, you know, like our white male counterparts, never had to ask for money for college. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is black wealth out there. Those things need to be documented. But there are black women who have a house worth of debt, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And so we got to mark the nuances of that. Yeah. And we want other researchers to go to it and retrieve it. For sure. And I love
1: that, you know, the hashtag, one thing I love about it, just uh, looking at the thread is not only highlighting uh, the work that people are doing, the experiences that they're having, but I feel like it's also a community that's growing um, around it, you see black women starting to talk to each other, follow each other, and relationships are being developed through this work. And that is, uh, I think, that it represents the essence of who we are um, in a very, in a very uh, um, genuine and authentic way. Uh, and so, I, I celebrate that and wanted to be a part of um, amplifying uh, this work. And, you know, when we were talking before about ways that we can support um, Black women uh, in these spaces, HBCUs and PWIs just generally, um, we can continue to create spaces where this kind of discussion and community uh, is built um, because that is what, that's what, that's what gets us, gets us through Um what can we look forward to? I'm excited to hear and ready to be interviewed whenever you need me, so just let me know. But excited to hear about the forthcoming projects. Is there anything that you want to highlight and tell people about uh, through, this, through this platform as related to Black Girl on Campus or just your work more generally? Um, I would love for people
3: to want visit the website that Nigeria did a phenomenal job of uh, building for us. Um, But click on that uh, MJLP link um, for our Mary Jane uh, uh, Patterson Legacy Project, because we want any Black women who, you know, have attended college. We want stories from, you know, from a a wide array of Black women. And so um, if they're, you know, listening to this podcast and navigate over there and, you know. want to participate, we would love to have, uh, the voices. Uh, I think people will be excited, um, as we, you know, uh, move closer to, uh, debuting some of the things, uh, from this work. Um, but that, that's the, the biggest thing I think, um, with regard to MJLP. Um, Najera, do you want to talk about some projects
2: you're doing? Yeah, so definitely go to the website, look at the hashtag. All our social channels are connected to the website, blackgirloncampus.com. We also have an ongoing registry of Black Beauty Queens. Um, every HBCU has a Miss Fisk. Um, even, you know, there's even a Miss Morehouse. We want to create an ongoing registry of Black Queens. Um, we want to document, um, the dance movement that has been going on on many campuses. And um, we also want everybody just to look out for more. Um, and then like Lori said, fill out the survey and um, be ready to be interviewed so that we can get your story recorded.
1: Amazing, I'm ready whenever. I want to thank you both for the great work that you're doing. And uh, for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, and thank you for just being uh, amazing women that I get have the privilege of knowing. So thank you, guys.
0: It's that time of year again to bring the HBCU energy. Target has you covered from a range of Black-owned or founded products alongside impactful opportunities to support and invest in the next generation of HBCU excellence. Whether it's homecoming or brunch with the girls, add an exclamation point to the menu with the Bronx-owned Ghetto Gastro's waffle mix and syrup and Slutty Vegan's tasty dips. Even better, make it a party with fun games like Lyrically Correct and Culture Karaoke. Discover more ways to tap in with Black-owned or founded products for your next social gathering. And oh, by the way, did you know Target's bringing back the HBCU Design Challenge? A creative competition pairing HBCU students with Target mentors. Keep an eye out for Target Scholars as well. A scholastic program offering financial assistance and internship opportunities for HBCU students. Lock in with Target this homecoming season and beyond at Target.com slash Measure. You know what else Target is doing? They're sponsoring season two of Illuminating Intersectionality, hosted by myself, Chef Jade, Dr. Takia Robinson, and Fran of Hey Fran Hey. It's a three-part series, season two, that discusses intersectionality as Black women in different spaces. And in this particular season, we are covering what? HBCUs. Episode one focuses on illuminating Black women scholars and the scholarly contributions of Black women at HBCUs. Episode two focuses on exploring intersecting identities in predominantly black spaces where Fran talks about the foreign born experience and HBCUs and how we can unify as the diaspora. And episode three, hosted by your girl, explores cultural expression and the HBCU experience through the legacy of food and culture. Illuminating intersectionality drops homecoming week. Make sure you listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm in the building with, you know, greatness right now, but I'm going to allow you to introduce yourself. And I'd like you to not only introduce yourself, but also what school you attended.
4: Absolutely. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar, it's a pleasure to meet you all digitally. My name is KJ Kearney. I am from Charleston, South Carolina. I am a proud 2005 graduate of the illustrious South Carolina State University, home of the Mighty Bulldogs and the Marching 101. Uh, And I'm also known because I run an account called Black Food Fridays that was nominated for a James Beard Award last year. So thankful to be in the building.
0: Let me tell you how we need to throw in all of our nominations, all of our winnings, all of our... Because we work hard, (laughs) do we not, as a Black people? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And I know normally you're used to talking about Black Food Fridays, um, but today I want to get into a little bit more of KJ, HBCU alum KJ. I have a couple questions for you. Now, the food ties in, but we're just going to talk. We're going to chat. So first and foremost, you told me you're from Charleston um, and you told me what school you went to. Can you share one of your favorite food memories from your time at South Carolina?
4: Wow, that's a great I was not expecting that man you are <laughs> you're a professional uh does beverage do beverages count i it is more so about your favorite memory
0: food beverage victuals foodstuffs libations you 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 name it
4: hey there you go my favorite you know what I gotta be mine for the audience okay so <laughs> Cause there is a favorite, but I don't think uh Target would appreciate that one. So Well, also
0: remember that things can be edited.
4: <laughs> okay, fair. So all right. One of my favorite memories from college um happened to be about the first time I ever um became lifted off liquor. <laughs> that didn't happen until college. And to be fair. I wasn't planning on drinking until I was twenty one. I was a goody two shoes in that regard. I was like,
5: "Oh, you I want to buy my to
4: rules, rules." Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna buy my own alcohol and I'll wait until then, you know. And then uh, what happened was my sophomore year of college, I got accepted into this uh, college internship at Disney World, mm-hmm. so I was going to move to Orlando for my second semester of college. Okay. And my best friend uh, at the time, or well, and, and still my best friend, Rob Brown. Rob Brown said, "You can't go to Orlando and get drunk with the first time with a bunch of white people you don't know." Mm. Um, and he said, "And this thing scared me to death." He said, "Because if you get drunk and pass out, they're gonna they're gonna draw dicks on your face." <laughs> and at twenty years old, nineteen years <laughs> old, that was the worst thing that could ever happen. Is somebody take a picture of me? With dicks on my face (laughs) because I got drunk and, you know, passed out. So they proceeded to go through this process to help me, you know, learn how my body reacts to liquor. And uh, it did not end well, but it was a very (laughs) memorable story. I'll tell you that much. (laughs)
0: Okay, I see why you, you said it. I don't know. I still may keep it in. I'm gonna decide that for myself. <laughs> what is your second favorite food memory though from your time uh attending an HBCU?
4: I think the the one of the best memories about food while at South Carolina State was there was this uh black-owned soul food restaurant, um maybe five minutes away from campus on you know by walking. Mm -hmm. one minute by driving and every time my parents would come into town they would take me to the brown derby and the brown derby was a um a family-owned restaurant Mm they'd been around forever and it just kind of became like a thing that me and my parents did every time they came into town i knew they was going to spend money on me and we was going to go do this uh, brown derby thing and in fact my first one of my first business ventures I named mm-hmm. after that restaurant. So I had a clothing company and I called it the Brown Derby Haberdashery uh, okay. out of respect. Yeah, out of respect for them.
0: OK, so funny little side, complete a side story for you. Um My father told me when I was little, when I was like three years old. He used to just get in my face and say, haberdashery. And it was the worst word in the world to me. I don't know why. And I would constantly tell him, don't say that. (laughs) So every time I hear haberdashery, that's what I think about. I love that story. And I actually, I want to come back to that. I'm going to circle back to that because that's a beautiful memory. Also, as college students, we be broke. So I know you were very grateful that you were going to get a robust meal. (laughs) You knew when your folks came to town. Yeah, absolutely. Um, South Carolina is a very proud state. Um, We've had conversations around cuisine, specifically Gullah Geechee cuisine. Can you highlight some of that pride? Did they display some of that through food while you were attending South Carolina State? Um, Yeah, I'm going to leave it there.
4: Man, that's a good question. Uh no, absolutely not. Uh there's mm-hmm. a thing you you have to keep in mind. Uh you see Gullah Geechee stuff on TV now. Yeah. But when I was in college in the early 2000s, was mm-hmm. wasn't nobody, you know, talking about Gullah Geechee anything. Mm-hmm. And then there was a stigma attached from mm-hmm. from being from Charleston because we were like I got to be real. We were like our own gang, bro. Like I'm not mm-hmm. going to lie. Uh, if the school population is five thousand people, easily a mm. thousand of them were from the Charleston metro area. So okay. we we carried ourselves in a way that kind of pissed a lot of people off, especially mm. administrators. We even tried to make a club, like we went the legal route and filled out the paperwork, and they denied us. Um, mm. So there was no way they were going to cook our cuisine. We already thought we run the show, so there was okay. no way they're going to be cooking red rice and. You know, all this mm-hmm. stuff, Blue Crab and all that stuff that we're used to. There's no way they were going to do that.
0: That's interesting. And that's funny because we had a conversation within the series about um, because HBCUs are predominantly black students. That's why they were created in the first place. Um, we then have to start breaking down our smaller groups within, within that, across the diaspora. So it's interesting that the students of the Charleston area specifically were different even from those who might be from other parts of South Carolina or just other parts of the country in general. I know that's not what we're really here to talk about, but can you speak a little bit more to that? Because I'm quite intrigued.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, when I when I grew up in Charleston, I didn't know that there was anything special about my culture because mm-hmm. it wasn't taught in schools, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't made a big deal. There was no Gullah Geechee parade or Gullah mm-hmm. Geechee festival or anything like that going on. Uh, there was an African festival in town or a celebration of African culture called mm-hmm. Moja that still goes on, but there was nothing specifically Gullah Geechee. And Jay, wow, this is a wild story. I remember I played football at South Carolina State and mm-hmm. the gentleman who I named earlier, Rob Brown, we became best friends because we were both freshmen. We didn't play often. So we would sit at the bench and we'd be talking to each other. And I remember <laughs> one day, we were, we were lined up against the fence and where our practice field is, anybody on the school campus can come and watch us practice.
1: Mm-hmm. And
4: I remember me and Rob were leaning up against the fence and we were talking and these two girls came up behind us and said, so what island are y'all from? And I said, mm. oh, he's from John's Island. Uh, <laughs> right? If John's Island is an island yeah. in Charleston County. I was like, uh-huh. he's from John's Island? And they were like, no, 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 no. Like, what island? Like, what, what is a John's Island? I'm like, I don't understand the question. She's like, I didn't know people from the Caribbean played football, and I was like, Oh, you think we're from the Caribbean now? Because the accent, I have an accent, but like, it ain't that deep. Like, I'll be real. No, I can no, turn it on I, and remember off. Remember, my
0: grandfather is from James Island, right? So, exactly. my grandfather has uh, had a very. Very heavy, heavy accent.
4: Right, right. So mine is not. Mm-hmm. I can turn it on, and then there are times mm-hmm. when, I'm, you know, when I'm feeling the spirit, uh, that, <laughs> that it comes out a little bit more. But Rob, Rob, you, like you Chef Bj. Right, exactly. <laughs> Rob, you you can mistake him for being from the Caribbean, and that now, mind mm-hmm. you, this is two, this is two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time I'd ever heard anybody associate my dialect with another country or another mm-hmm. region of the world uh mm-hmm. my dad's from Tennessee so when mm-hmm. we go visit his people they would say y'all talk funny but you know okay. I'm like well y'all talk funny so you know I, I ain't mm-hmm. really think of it that was the start of me going down this path of figuring out well what is this Gullah Geechee thing what does it mean how do I fit mm-hmm. into the narrative uh mm-hmm. so I don't know who that girl was but shout out to her
0: Shout out to her. Yeah, she sent you. She had you following your North Star, brother. <laughs> I love that. Okay, we're going to get back into a little bit of food. Um, Can you share any stories? I know, I know Gullah Geechee is very specific, but South Carolina is still a Southern state, which... The South, the Black South especially, is a culture of its own. Black Americans are another culture outside of that. Like we all fall in these umbrellas. Can you share any stories or anecdotes about food-related traditions or rituals at South Carolina State?
4: Man, I mean, just like every other HBCU, you know what I'm gonna say? Fried chicken, right? We Didn't had y'all a fr- have
0: fried chicken Wednesdays.
4: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken, because. Mm -hmm. Our campus was in Orangeburg, South Carolina. So a lot of people went home on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. they brought out the big guns on Wednesday, not Friday. If we was in (laughs) D.C. where people were staying home for, the you know, staying on campus for the weekend, maybe we'll have it on Mm -hmm. Friday. But Mm -hmm. most of our uh, fried chicken came earlier in the week. Um, And, you know, besides that, again, going to Brown Derby was Mm -hmm. a ritual. That, That was something that me and my parents did. Every single to the point where the people who were serving the food knew my parents, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we came so often in four years, no exaggeration. I probably went a hundred times, if mm-hmm. not more. Um, so fried chicken was was good. Uh, and then brown derby was probably the second one. And then thirdly, I would say uh I want to pitch this show to Hulu. So Hulu, Netflix, anybody if you're watching hear me out hear him Mm. out there is something special about food at a black a uh, a black school's tailgate
0: Mm, mm, talk about it come on let's talk about it let's talk about
4: it i mean there there are some people who are chefing Mm. yeah i mean there Mm -hmm. are people out there who are cooking cooking Mm. and i didn't know that before i went so i would go to south carolina state because I had an uncle who went to a HBCU. The one he went to was too far, so he'd take us to South Carolina State games. Mm-hmm. I had a cousin who went to South Carolina State before me. You know, a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. But when I became a football player and a freshman at South Carolina State, and after every game, we would go to the tailgate area, and the Charleston alumni chapter had their mm-hmm. own tailgate, because, again, people from Charleston think they're better from than everyone else. <laughs> so we had our own tailgate area, and they would just feed us until we were full. And I'm like, was it the best macaroni and fried chicken ever? Probably not. But mm-hmm. at that moment, mm-hmm. what it meant to me was like, these, I didn't know, at the time, I didn't know these older people. All they knew was that I was a, a Black boy from Charleston, and mm-hmm. so Charleston feeds Charleston. Charleston, look out for Charleston. So they would mm-hmm. feed me, and yeah. and Rob Brown, and, and, And all our friends who were from Charleston, even though they didn't play football, they would just give all of us food. And so, yeah, man, that would that would round out my my positive memories from a food perspective. I
0: I love that, KJ. And you you just answered my uh, my my last question, but. Because you are just a plethora of uh, stories and (laughs) narratives, I, I think you might be able to answer it with something else. You've actually answered it a few times throughout this conversation. Can you discuss the role of food in building a sense of community and belonging at an HBCU?
4: In episode one of your podcast, you guys talked about how being at an HBCU when everyone is Black, kind of by process of elimination makes you group up based mm-hmm. on other things other than your blackness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was a powerful statement. And I think food is probably another way that that happens on HBCU campuses, or let me speak for my HBCU campus, right? Because mm-hmm. another thing that we would do, people from Charleston, is that mm-hmm. we would have crab cracks. Mm-hmm. And crab cracks are normal to me. Like, mm-hmm. I grew up, somebody throw a bunch of blue crabs and some sausage and some corn and potatoes so it was in like a, a pot. like a crab boil, but yeah. you call it a crab, crack. It crab okay. crack. Yeah, we call it crab crack. Yeah, so crab boil, essentially. And mm-hmm. so I I, I, grew, I thought everybody did that, you know? Like, mm-hmm. at 18, 19 years old, I didn't realize, oh, all of South Carolina does not live by the ocean. That's just, yes, that's y'all. Just, yeah. That's my experience, yeah. you know what I mean? So then I go to campus, and then people would be having crab cracks. The older, you know, older uh, Uh kids from Charleston would invite the younger kids. Again, Mm -hmm. we were like clicked up, man, and they would Mm -hmm. be like, "Yo, come to our house off campus. We about to eat crab Uh, because in Charleston we don't put the S on crabs, right?" So (laughs) we were were like, "Yeah, come through, eat crab, singular, but we really mean as much as you can eat, right?" And then there would be kids from other places around South Carolina. And if you became friendly with us, other places around the nation, mm-hmm. who would be like, I ain't never seen a crab in real life. Not like a whole crab, right? Wow. They seen crab legs, like king mm-hmm. crab legs, but mm-hmm. like a blue crab scurrying around, right. and you gotta pick it up from the back and then throw it in mm-hmm. the pot. they never seen that. And it it opened my mm-hmm. eyes because it expanded mm-hmm. my horizons of what it meant to be black, what it meant mm-hmm. to be black from South Carolina, because there are people who are an hour down the road for me, ain't never eat a blue crab in their life. And so I found that to be, you know, at least as it relates to the question you're asking, I think it's a very interesting part of how food builds community, because obviously, as Charlestonians, we rallied around that. But then other people who weren't familiar with our culture, they, if they weren't scared enough, you know, to try it, they would be They would be put on to like, oh, man, like a new aspect of blackness was unlocked for them. It's like, oh, I didn't know black people did that. Yes, we do.
0: Yes, these black people do. (laughs) Oh, man, KJ, I I could sit here and talk to you about so much more about your experience. And I feel like this warrants us to have another conversation in the future. We just keep coming back together. You know, we linked up. I told you you weren't be able to get rid of me. So. I'm really grateful for you. Thank you for sharing these tidbits. And I know the audience is really going to love this. Do you have any closing words that you'd like to to give to anybody?
4: Yeah, I, I would say that the next phase of Black Food Fridays is going to be one where I'm focused on how food could be used as a literal tool of liberation. Um, our Our food has, I mean, if you look up Bethune-Cookman College, and Sweet mm-hmm. Potato Pie. I'm not even going to spoil it for y'all. Y'all look up Adun Cookman College and Sweet Potato Pie. Look up Georgia Gilmore and the Club mm-hmm. from Nowhere. Look up mm-hmm. Black Panthers and their free breakfast program. Black mm-hmm. people have been using food to liberate each other since... Because food has
0: people... been used as a weapon on us.
4: Come on now. Mm-hmm. Um, So since Black people have existed on this particular continent, we've been using food to Leverage or fight for our own freedom and advocate for our own cultures. And I just don't want us to get to a point where we become so obsessed with uh, five star ratings and Michelin stars and James Beards and and -hmm. all the wine and food and all that that we forget Mm -hmm. that sometimes, bro, just busting open a watermelon and eating that with your homeboys or or busting down some crab. And we do in Charleston Mm -hmm. like that is still. High quality dining. You know what I mean? Like, don't be ashamed of chitlin. Don't be ashamed of pig feet. Don't be ashamed of that. That stuff is delicious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And no black mm-hmm. person owns a processing company for chicken. We don't own Tyson. We okay, don't own we don't churches. No yeah, we don't mm-hmm. own no Purdue. We don't own churches. We don't own KFC. Mm-hmm. We don't own none of that. So, black mm-hmm. people ain't the only ones eating fried chicken, but we the only ones being ashamed of it. So. I Let's not do that. That would be my final parting words. Love all your food.
0: Love all of our food. Well, you know, the food that deserves to be loved.
4: Uh. (laughs) Right. Nobody should love sugar on grits. That's an abomination.
0: Okay. Right there is where we can link up because I agree. And that would lead to a whole nother episode. But um, KJ made a good point. And I'm going to shamelessly plug uh, season one of Illuminating Intersectionality, episode three. I want you to check out all three, but episode three, I talk about food as liberation and as a tool and as a weapon, but in a very truncated manner. So make sure you all stay tuned to Black Food Fridays and what KJ is getting ready to bring to the table. And I appreciate you, KJ. Tell the people where to find you.
4: If you were enamored by my voracious conversation and my electric smile, should you be having the privilege to see this? You can find me on Black Food Fridays on Instagram, Black Food Fridays on TikTok sometimes. Uh, But more especially right now, I'm really enjoying the growth of this newsletter. It's called Who Made the Potato Salad? I write about uh, my own musings that are too long to be put in an Instagram caption like why you should never post about Darius Cooks or the different foods oh. that white people eat at baby showers compared to black <laughs> people. You know, if, you, if you're if you interested in stuff like that, you will enjoy it. So please find me on Substack at Who Made the Potato Salad.
0: Check out KJ. I'm going to have all those links in the description box and make sure you all stay tuned for the next conversation. All right. I'm sitting in the studio with one of my nearest dearest um and oldest friends but i'm gonna allow her to introduce herself so i
5: want you to say your name for the people and where you went to school okay hello people i am chariel based in bond howard university class of 2008
0: (laughs) do you any any like you know, taglines or anything you want to throw in there. You know, everybody does an illustrious. I was waiting for like the You granular. know, I you know, they
5: always they say that we do that too much, but since you asked, <laughs> I wanted
0: give it all to me. Oh baby, Chariel. bring it
5: all to me. This is Shario based and Bond, and I attended the Mecca of Black Education, <laughs> the Hilltop, the one and only. Howard University class of 2008. Shout out to class of 2008, it's our 15 reunion year. I got on my yes. reunion gear, Miss yes, you do, y'all. sister. Yes, all that. All that <laughs> now, Sharia, where are you from originally? Are you from DC? I am not from DC, I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia. So, okay. yeah, we got a lot of good going on from Atlanta to DC.
0: So that's dope because Atlanta is a very black city, as we all know, mm-hmm. um, and also holds two also very uh, prestigious HBCUs, uh, or more than two. Yeah,
5: yeah.
1: We, okay, you, yeah. You,
5: it's four actually. You oh, have Morehouse. For? You have Morehouse and Spelman. You mm-hmm. cannot forget Clark Atlanta, and you cannot forget Morris you. Brown.
0: You're absolutely you right, Morris Brown.
5: Uh, you, can't say (laughs) where where we
0: go no No one knows (laughs) yeah absolutely right and i did and i apologize for that you're right so atlanta holds for HBCUs. Illustrious uh, HBCUs. Uh, illustrious HBCUs, <laughs> which means you came from good blackness, right? Good sounds of blackness.
5: Absolutely. Uh, textbook sounds of blackness. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was uh, there was HBCU culture all around me growing up. My mom is an HBCU grad, so yeah, I knew uh, it was never a question as <laughs> to so mm-hmm. whether or not I was going to have the HBCU experience for myself. I've known since knowing was knowing.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that that runs deep in your family because your little sister also went to a HBCU.
5: Yes. Let's see. We've used illustrious. So let me see the distinguished. <laughs> <laughs> <Go Atlas>. Yes. <laughs> so, Which you yeah, can we, also we, hear we, about in episodes. We remember two. everything. We remember everything. <laughs>
0: I love that. I love that it runs deep. All right, we're going to talk about Sharielle's personal experience, but as it pertains to food okay. and attending Howard. So do you have a favorite memory around food, a favorite food memory from your time attending Howard?
5: I have so many because food was so ingrained in so much of what we did. And mm. what's funny is when, when you're in it, like in those years during undergrad, I didn't think about I didn't think about the impact that food was having at that time. But looking Mm -hmm. back, I'm like, man, it was so many important things happening around food the entire time that I was matriculating through Howard. So I have a lot of important memories. But what comes to mind, uh, my first food memory is getting on campus and all the upperclassmen that were coming back from being home for the summer or whatever, they were mad excited to go to this place called Ho Chi. So I'm like,
3: okay, well,
5: <laughs> you know, we've been here for a week. We finished our, our freshman orientation. What is Ho Chi? Like, that's is that what the upperclassmen call the calf? Like, what is Ho Chi? What is Ho Chi? So I'm trying to figure it out. While all the upperclassmen, all the sophomores, juniors and seniors, they they running trying to get their Ho Chi before class. <laughs> so I've come to find out, Ho Chi is actually. A little hood, holes in the wall, a Chinese food place. It's not on campus, but it's literally like right there. You take one step off of Howard's campus and you can be at Ho Chi. So I'm like, okay, y'all are mad high for this Chinese food. So I'm like, okay, well, let me be like the upperclassman. Let me get me some Ho Chi. So I go in there and I'm thinking I'm about to like order, you know, regular Chinese food like I've been eating in Atlanta for forever. Okay, let me get some fried mm-hmm. rice, sweet out chicken, a little egg roll situation. I'm in the line and none of these niggas are ordering Chinese food. Like, <laughs> none of them. And I'm like, wait a minute. So y'all call this Ho Chi. It's short for Howard China, but oh, y'all I figured not ordering much. Chinese food. <laughs> Uh so what you had to get, what I learned from from, from the upper class and what you have to get from Ho Chi is wings and fries, mumbo sauce, hot sauce, salt pepper, and your mix, which <laughs> was I'm like, okay, well, what's the mix? So the mix is iced tea and lemonade. But that's your Ho Chi go-to meal. The first time I bit into that chicken with that mumbo sauce, I saw why <laughs> niggas were clamoring to get the food. <laughs> And and Ho Chi to my to this day now I do I did it as a classmate I do it as an alum when I go to D.C. when I go to Howard homecoming the first thing I have to eat I gotta go get my Ho Chi I gotta okay. go get it. it's like it's, wait have no, we been to Ho Chi we have we have okay. so, okay, so uh, had my it. my junior my senior year I um I was off campus but I lived in the house that was. Three steps from Ho Chi. Mm. So mm. Oh, <laughs> problem. I was it was it was problematic. They they were getting all my ends. Like it was just <laughs> like, well, let me just stop on Ho Chi. It's right here. So everything. But yeah, like if, if you say if you ask anybody like where you getting your chicken and fries from where you need your mix from, they're gonna tell you off real Chi. If they don't know what Ho Chi is, they ain't really the gonna out. It's no way. It's, okay. no way. it's no way. It's no way. I
0: actually fully believe that because um, I interviewed somebody else who went to Howard, who was in the in the main episode of Illuminating Intersectionality. And it wasn't a part of what was featured. But that person also spoke to me about Ho Chi. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the first the first things they spoke on. And let me tell you all something. Shariel singing the praises about a piece of fried chicken. You need to take that with you don't need to take it with a grain of salt whatever the opposite of that is because (laughs) chariel makes the best chicken wings every time we go on a trip everybody asks her to make chicken wings it doesn't matter where we are if we're in a hotel room we're gonna figure out a way for chariel to make chicken wings
5: yeah but what's crazy is i associate like now i associate like asian people frying chicken with howard but because before Mm. prior to me having that meal at ho chi growing up in atlanta we never got fried chicken from the Chinese spot ever. Mm-hmm. If you wanted fried chicken, mm-hmm. you go and you fry your own chicken, or you go to Grand House. <laughs> the House get you a piece, but you weren't getting it. You weren't ordering chicken at the Chinese spot, so that was new for me. And I, I tie that anytime I'm at any type of Chinese place and I'm getting fried chicken. I'm like, dang, how it really did this to me? Because if it had not been for Ho Chi, I wouldn't have trusted. I promise you, I wouldn't have trusted <laughs> from the Chinese spot. <laughs> yeah, man, that, which that is fair
0: <laughs> okay so that okay hold the mumbo sauce because okay <laughs> um you actually gave me a perfect segue into my next question can you share any stories or anecdotes? which you kind of just did but if more comes to you yeah. can you share any stories or anecdotes about food related traditions or rituals at your hbcu or due to you attending howard
5: yeah, so you know, anytime it, every HBCU I think has their own soul food day. Like mm-hmm. I think mo- for most of them, I do know that they it's like you know fried chicken Wednesday. They're still mm-hmm. there. not at the Mecca Wednesday. <laughs> it's not supposed to be on Wednesday. Anytime we hear somebody say fried chicken Wednesday, we're looking at them crazy. Like y'all soul food day wasn't Thursday. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's, soul food Thursdays, soul food Thursdays. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> food, Thursdays, not no fried chicken Wednesday, but yeah, every Thursday, um, that that was our tradition, and it was like a, a family meal, like, niggas mm-hmm. that didn't eat at the calf <clears throat> or eat on campus at all, they was going to be there mm-hmm. on Thursday, because they wanted mm-hmm. their fried chicken, their greens, their macaroni and cheese, their cornbread, their candy, and mm-hmm. their potato salad, without fail, every Thursday.
0: Oh, you they know? gave you all the full spread.
5: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was Ooh. in the calf And um, so <laughs> once you got to be like an upperclassman, you could go eat in the lounge where the professors and she ate. Right. <laughs> oh, <better. laughs> and, then, and, they, and they had the better food, it, but they still they served the same menu that they had in the calf. But mm-hmm. they had like that. That should it tasted better because I think they know that you know the board of trustees members or the president might pop. So they seasoned it, it a
0: little more or something. So,
5: yeah. So it was. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is special. To this day, that's something. That's that's gonna be one of the best old food plates that you can get. Um, mm. They got they had all the fixings. You know, they sliced up tomatoes, sliced up onions, like just like you might find at your grandma's house. Um, the hot sauce was hot saucy. Like (laughs) that wasn't Proper hot sauce The peach cobbler was good But you knew like Thursday Niggas was going to come together That's when Your friends you hadn't seen all week That you was missing Y'all was going to get together Thursday Over that fried chicken And that macaroni and cheese In the Mm calf Or in the lounge Um, And And it it was like family dinner But on Thursday So that's um, That's the biggest food tradition That sticks out It's definitely soul food Thursdays
0: I love that, and I love I love how adamant you are about the Thursday, because yeah, your wife hey,
5: is I part, of, I, she part of the part <laughs> of blast episode. Bellman, North and, Carolina A- auntie, <laughs> family, all of them niggas they swear by fried chicken Wednesday. Nah, they do so. South
0: Carolina State. Yeah, I also
5: I, heard I, in this I, episode, most of them they have their fried chicken went when, Wednesdays, and that's fine. You know. how <laughs> a lot of things first and a lot of things right. And then these other schools, you know, deviate. But let them have their own things <laughs> and traditions. We'll keep Soul Food Thursdays to ourselves and that's fine.
0: <laughs> I see why they say the things that they say. Y'all are like Cowboys fans.
5: <laughs> whoa, whoa, ooh, friend, don't do that to me.
0: No, because oh, y'all I'll are I'll die know, hard.
5: We're not. No, we're not like Cowboys fans. Cowboys fans. Well, I'm not gonna go on a football t- tangent, but cowboys <laughs> are delusional and living in the past. They haven't had wins in decades. And I forgot who I was talking to. I forgot. All right. No. All right. <laughs> they, they <laughs> I don't know. Some niggas <laughs> has been winning and <laughs> hard, but definitely not in the Cowboys. No. But yeah, Howard is a little extra. And we admit it. We 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 recognize no, I love that. It we're though. very self aware. I love it. I actually yeah. I
0: actually love it. And I think that it's important, even though it can be, obviously, it's all in good fun, right? Yeah. We all have HBCU awards and who's the best and so forth. But at the end of the day, we all know that it's a it's a pillar within itself. All of them
5: together yeah. stand yeah, as a absolutely. pillar. So. Which is why, you know, I, I'm not going to ever, you know, side eye or look twice if I hear the illustrious South Carolina state. Because it is. Mm-hmm, the distinguished mm-hmm. family. Because it is. Those mm-hmm. titles don't just belong to Howard. It's it. We mm-hmm. are HBCU family. Those titles belong to all of us. But so, black people love to roast and boast. So it I mean, makes sense for everybody to be. Listen, baby, we we love we love everybody. We got room for everybody except Hampton. If you went to Hampton, then I don't know what's. What do. <laughs> I bet that food wasn't even good.
0: Actually, I talked to somebody from Hampton, and I feel like you might be right. Um, (laughs) All right, I got my next question. (laughs) What is the what would you say is the significance of food as a form of cultural expression and identity at an HBCU?
5: Um, it's important, you know. I think. When I think about the fact that Howard is called the Mecca and that's one of our titles and it has been for over 100 years because um, one of my favorite professors, he explains it so clearly that, you know, we're recognized or introduced as the Mecca. Because when you think of Mecca, you think of a place where all of these people can come together um, Mm -hmm. and exchange ideas, exchange um, information with each other in a way that's almost spiritual. And you definitely yeah. can see that on a campus like Howard, being a larger campus, um, mm-hmm. it's going to be the first time that so many of us experience cultures and therefore food that we never have before. Uh, mm-hmm. The we have the biggest <clears throat> African uh, student body in in the country. Okay. okay, for you know what I'm saying for HBCUs, we we have. The largest Afro Latino population for HBCUs, mm-hmm. and that's evident in the food as well. You know, when you're when you're in these dorms, you smelling something good coming from a room, and it's a, it's some smells of uh, some food that you've never smelled before. Mm-hmm. Like you're like, dang, what spices they using And You step into the room and somebody making jollof rice on a hot plate. You know what I'm saying? Like, -hmm. it it could be anything, but it's just like this marriage of so many different cultures and this exchange of so many different ideas. It informs um, not only the way you cook, but it also, the way you eat, but it informs the way that you cook. Uh, Mm -hmm. So many of the things that I do, I find myself doing is things that I learned from girls in dorms where I, I haven't seen or spoken to them since. But I remember, you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember Najee. Najee with Najee, shout out to Najee, wherever you at. But Najee with throw, she could cook. Like, she was making mm-hmm. stuff that we had never eaten before. But the fufu was good. Like, <laughs> we was in the door eating the fufu. And mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, because there's such a sense of community at HBCUs, you yep. trust um, other black students in ways that you might not
0: Some, have to be somewhere else. Uh, yes, yeah, I'll,
2: you
5: know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll keep it cute. I'll, I'll yeah. say it like that. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, and you know that another part of it is that people are coming into it wanting to share those family recipes
4: mm-hmm. and
5: that food culture because they see you as family. Oh, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, man, it's it's dope and, and I don't think it's an experience that you would get many other places.
0: Uh you are you are the perfect transition queen because <laughs> <laughs> the, like the we perfect we and We, we seg and, <laughs> <laughs> and we okay, it's like a swag surf, but remix. Um my last question for you, Sharia. Can you discuss the role of food in building a sense of community, even more so than you already have at an HBCU?
5: Even more so than I already have. Um, yeah, I mean, food just in general, I think, is a, is a way that black people in our communities, period, come together. and mm-hmm. And higher education or academic spaces are no different. Um, it's gonna be the same type of gathering over food as there are, uh, as there is in churches or in mm-hmm. schools or with family gatherings. You know, you come into the barbecue, you come into the picnic, family reunion. You know, most of the events gonna be centered around. Okay, we're doing the fish fry, we're doing the barbecue. Like, what's up? Mm-hmm. HBCU culture is no different. Um, you know, for homecoming, you're gonna be looking for the tailgate where you are going straight mm-hmm. to the bros because you know they got they gonna have the best ribs, <clears throat> even though. High- <laughs> Quiet as it's kept, but high key. Sigmas are taking it. If Uh-oh. you had, like, when you next time you go to an HBC homecoming, get get two plates and compare. Compare the plates, okay. the brush. <laughs> and then go find the sigma because You're gonna be like, wait a minute, little little known secret. Like what y'all been hiding? Like well, so,
0: that? what is it? What is it about the sigmas and the food? Then tell what what is it?
5: Ain't like so. I believe the brus they be grilling. But mm-hmm. the Sigmas, they be grilling and cooking. So they and sides. Making sides. Yes, and the sides okay. <laughs> yes. Like, yes. It's gonna be good either way. But the Sigmas taking it cause them sides gonna be good. Them, Which is an missing. important
0: secret weapon that you got yeah. to have to have in a good barbecue spot. Yeah. Barbecue in general, tailgate, whatever.
5: Yeah. So the brush, mm-hmm. you know, they they like they like Arby's, nigga. We got the meats, but I want something else. <laughs> That's, that's where the sigma got it right. That's where, that's where the sigma got it right. They're like, oh, we got the meats too. But however, I'm going to get this potato salad because I asked my mom to give me the recipe and I perfected it down at the front house. So, okay, I like that. Then, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, yeah, homecoming, we coming together over food. Graduation, there are dinners, banquets. like We're, we're coming together over food. Prayer breakfast, we coming together mm-hmm. over food. Study mm-hmm. sessions. What we doing? We eating. 100% while of the we time. 100% <laughs> yes. of the time. And those, those late night study sessions, you'll be surprised at how quickly um they can just delve into another a different type of late night family dinner situation pretty soon when mm-hmm. you look around the books are face down but everybody got a plate <laughs> and it might be mm-hmm. some of everything potluck study sessions man it's it's really uh, it's really a different kind of coming together um mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it's just the things that were ingrained in us coming up in the different places we came up, whether it be Atlanta, Detroit, Chicago, Nigeria, you know, Botswana, nigga, Ethiopia, wherever. <laughs> like we yes. all together, we mixing it up and we finna eat. I love, I love that, Shari. That's the perfect
0: way to end this. I yeah. um, I love the pride that you carry, uh, for Howard, but for HBCUs in general. I love that Absolutely. it's been ingrained in you. Through your mother shout out to miss allison i love her yeah. mm-hmm. um i shout love
2: that she's a savannah great state. Okay. State shout out her. to
0: savannah state for miss <laughs> allison shout out to famu for Lily, howard and i also love that either you then married and your wife attended an HBCU, and your wife works at an HBCU, and you're she just does. filled with the HBCU. so oh yeah baby I it's a beautiful <laughs> pride
5: it's, it's our our Wi Fi uh network is HBCU Connect nigga we we oh all Howard God. and Spellman everything in this house. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but shout <laughs> out to all the HBCUs, man. I love the I just love the legacy of it. This is a conversation that um, someone could have been having with an HBCU alum fifty years ago, and it would have been the same thing. Especially mm-hmm. because Ho Chi. Man, on how it's since the '60s, so I'm just. Saying. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, they've, they've been joined, frying chicken since the '60s. Yeah, They joint is mm. 50 years old. So mm.
0: <laughs> yeah, it better be 50 years worth of good. If it's there for 50 years, I know the chicken is it's good.
2: good.
0: It's good. Sharia, I love you. I thank you. I know the crowd is gonna be very uh entertained and and, and also enthralled. <laughs> Because you're beautiful at the way that you relay your experience. And so I appreciate that. Do you want the people to find you or do you not want the people to find you?
5: The people can find me. I don't be talking about shit. You're not going to find me <laughs> on Instagram because that ain't for the people. But if you're looking for me, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, what is the shit? The Jazzy Bell, <laughs> like the Outcast song. At yes, B-E-L-L-E. Jazzy B-E-L-L-E. Okay. Yeah, i just be on that talking shit. But if you want to see the shit, it's there for you people.
0: Well, it's good shit. Sharielle's one of the funniest, smartest people that I know. So go get your life if you happen to be on Twitter. I'll have that link in the description box. Ooh, and I love you. And I will.
5: Win it. Because I ain't talking about shit but football until uh, February. But come on. Somebody who loves on, football gonna
0: yeah. be happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> I told you all you weren't going to be disappointed, didn't I? Okay. All right. So I'm glad that you all were fed and full this episode. I know I absolutely was. I loved sitting down with KJ. I loved sitting down with Shario. I loved hearing about their experiences, specifically as it pertains to food. And then the conversation between Dr. Njoku, Dr. Lori Patton Davis and Dr. Robinson was just mwah chef's kiss i love how they covered every aspect a rich overview as she explains it a rich overview and discussion of the experiences and contributions of black women at hbcus we're full are we not so you all already know what to do with yourselves drink your water okay hydrate all of those internals mind your business unless it is listening to illuminating intersectionality season two and make sure you hit them heels in between those toes those elbows and under those eyes because your black will crack
2: if it's dry bye y'all